Think of it as a notebook, the raggedness, and blossoming together, a way of entering, belated, scattered, windblown. Your hands are lined with earth before you know it. You scoop up handfuls, rest your eye on a particular nowhere. The same bloom has multiple silences. Seasons do not matter, not now. You are inside a parenthesis, drilling down under layers of weather. Who knows? It could happen again like this, or not quite like this. You will drive over the brow of the hill, you will hear the curlew's song, and it will wake something. It will be a sort of beginning. The poem Garden by Linda Anderson from The Station Before. Welcome to Becoming Human. Today we are going to explore how not to use tradition. If you've been following along, you are probably thinking that I am just another quaint traditionalist. Nothing is new, modern isn't superior, and we should honor those who come before us. But the whole premise has been roots and growth. So what happens when you just have the roots and don't care for the growing plant? Well, we're going to expand on that metaphor and unpack the analogy of the map even further too. There are dangers to pure tradition, just as there should be concerns for using the map and the garden for deciding how to grow what you currently have. Roots and growth, if you'll allow me to reiterate, are dance partners. So, to what can the dance be compared? That's what I want to talk about today. As always, thanks for listening, subscribing, reviewing, especially for those who are listening on Apple Podcasts. And one of the most honorable ways you can help enhance this show is by sharing this with people you think might enjoy it, which could be no one, which I also understand. And don't forget to check out Coffee. It's a platform like Patreon where you can financially support what I'm trying to do. You can do that as a monthly thing or just leave a one-time tip, but that's your call. So let's get into it with the dangers of tradition. And we've got three metaphors to cover, museums, gardens, and maps. So let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. I remember the first time I was yelled at by a docent. I was in high school and maybe I was pretentious. Maybe I was just trying to reach for maturation, but I went to the museum. We have a pretty solid museum where I live with a, with a rich history. It's where I found my appreciation of Van Gogh by gazing into his wheat fields with Reaper. There's a beautiful room straight out of early modern Europe. We always called it the Red Room. And this museum also has a, a cloister room, which uses actual architecture of post-classical columns as its ambiance. Beautiful. But I thought it was the thing to do, to look sincere and inquisitive and there was Thomas Cole's The Architect's Dream, which genuinely requires a very close look. Now, this painting is tucked away through various side rooms, certainly far enough away to avoid suspicion. So I ebbed close, noticing the ancient obelisks in the back. And then look, the Great Pyramid of Giza. And I actually said this while pointing, only to hear a stern voice expel back, Please step away from the art. There's a certain shame that comes with being confronted by a docent at a museum. It's happened other times when I've tried to take my young children to see the beauty of art. 
but maybe it was my rebellious adolescence. I felt this tinge of disrespect. Like someone sat down and had an idea. They started taking the world they knew and put it into a form that transcends the phenomenal limitations of human beings, and upon completion, it gets sealed in time with protective glass and a frame. Now, I do understand why docents yell at suspicious teenagers and why artwork is protected by museums. I get it. Don't come at me. I'm not gluing my hand to anything. But I wonder if this is why Van Gogh is so mesmerizing. Because his art feels alive. Yet the algorithm of art is to take something alive and make it azoic, inanimate, lifeless. Whatever your take on art in museums, I'm not trying to create a debate or movement here. I've just come to find that it is a rather good description of our relationship to tradition as well. Particularly the dangers of tradition. Short version, we do this same thing with the world that we live in. So, on one hand, you've got museums and docents and frame-protected artwork. On the other hand, I happen to live on a piece of property that has been farmed for over a century and, and has probably produced food for way longer than that. In a rural area, uh, this property was a staple for a lot of folks, and I also happen to enjoy, on an amateur level, if I'm honest, the art of homesteading. So I grow some food. When I moved to the land, I noticed that the ground was different. There were these areas that were heavy clay as a result of industrial farming practices. The house had not been inhabited in a couple of decades, and certain signs of absence were, were very clear. There were, however, signs of life. The way that gardening and food production goes, a steady hand is a great asset, but plants are intrinsically motivated to survive and reproduce. So as I began planting things, I noticed that there were areas where either the ground was especially healthy or there were areas where things planted decades ago were still vital. In my success in food production, it would require utilizing the decisions that were made previously. For example, the areas that got industrially farmed, I've had to spend years planting cover crops and making those areas pasture so that the soil conditions might improve. Someone, at some point, made decisions that I have to work with. Or, I could have just started growing seeds anywhere, but it would have been better for me to use the soil that had been well attended to, that was already nutrient-rich, so that the growth would be better. What I realized is that doing any farming here would have to work with the cards that I inherited from other human beings who made decisions before me. I was not starting things with a blank slate, and any future growth would be determined by how I worked with what I had. And one of the unique surprises of this venture, one that I find deep meaning in, is when I find a perennial growing in an unexpected place, and it becomes like a sort of gift from those who came before me. I get to reap the benefits of someone else's work and use what they left for me to glean. And that's the metaphor. Because there was another property, not too far from me, whose previous owners had started a rather large orchard. As they got older, they weren't able to care for the orchard as well, and eventually the property was sold. One thing about orchard trees, they aren't always the prettiest. Well, people moved onto the property, 
and they had their own sort of blank slate vision for what the land should look like, which did not involve the craggy looking trees, some of which were fruit varieties that you can't find much anymore. So they chopped them all down. No grafting new trees, no pruning, nothing. You can utilize the reality you've inherited, you can ignore it, or you can dispose of it. But you have to do something with it. And any growth will be exponentially greater if you use it well. But we've already looked at that. Roots and growth, right? What I want to emphasize is the other option with the garden. What I could have done is showed up, looked at how things were, and then did nothing. I could have went, here's where the previous owners planted this thing, and then decided that it could not be changed or altered and needed to be left the way it was. Essentially, there is a difference between using and honoring the past versus freezing the past. When talking specifically about tradition, I use these two metaphors because I think they capture the two dispositions we can choose. We can be docents or we can be gardeners, which depends on my perspective of change in time. The world, in my perspective, is not a museum but a garden. It's a process. You can go back to episode three for more on that. And it's a process if only because change and movement are natural implications of existence. The world is constantly moving. It's going somewhere. I I am saying that existence, being alive, means existence is like a plant, not a painting. So you can choose to not utilize where it's been, but it's still going to grow regardless. We're just deciding how we are going to accentuate the unavoidable growth. And yes, there are lots of options here, but the one that we need to confront today is the danger of romanticizing the past. The choice of taking something that is alive and enshrining it behind sealed glass or a docent's suspicious gaze. When we take the approach of, but this is the way it's always been, we are consigning a plant to dormant inactivity. Trying to replicate the content of a tree or a plant over changing time is an act in the impossible, and you can actually kill a plant if you treat it like a painting. Locking a fruit tree behind protective glass is not actually good for the nature of the tree. And this is the problem. The difference of replicating the content or replicating the process of the past. So, and don't get me wrong, roots are important, but roots are only a medium and are important insofar as they lead to healthy growth. If you only have the roots, those too will quickly rot into compost. And for a a lot of folks, even the so-called progressives, We tend to romanticize tradition and familiarity and what is known and don't pay attention to what the tradition is offering us to pursue next. And you might be asking, how do progressives interact with tradition this way? Aren't they against tradition? Well, just think about how people approach music. When we talk about what music is good music, usually the primary determination of musical quality is nostalgia. There's not really an absolute set of categorical truths for what makes music good. We like a particular form of music most of the time because we know that form. The music we prefer might be newer eccentric even, but a lot of that preference is actually shaped by our prior experience. Remember qualia from last time. 
As it goes, we like certain processes and images and methodologies because they have provided value to our navigation of the world. Sometimes this is even a result of rebelling against certain experiences that we've deemed negative, so we become progressive or liberal in response to something we don't like. You know, we like this music because it's not that music. However, it's still based on the limitations of what we know. It's still based on what we have received from what's come before us. Even changing for the sake of change can be deeply entrenched in our individual experience. We just want to change things all the time because we have some component of our past that that maybe fears consistency or because we've only known a world that is constantly interrupted. But what also tends to happen is that the the so-called progressives, once they catalyze the content they were hoping for, often become traditionalist. Once they get to a new territory, they stop. History is full of folks and movements that push for something, and then when it arrived, they said, eh, no, let's, let's go ahead and stop here. And whatever the outcome, the nuance is that many folks almost innately look to honor the content of the past instead of the process of the past. Our bend toward the familiar and our proclivity toward only acknowledging our limited experience, that egocentrism, it leads to a desire to access something and then stop. We want particular content, which can list you as a conservative or a progressive politically, but the process of effervescent change is not something you generally see in society. And, and there's reasons why, too, which, which deal with our innate sociological and psychological tendency to resist change. I'll suggest episode six here. You've got Yuri Brofenbrenner and various system theories. Emil Durkheim has great thoughts on this, too, you know, if you're interested in that kind of thing. The result of all of this is, is simply that, that aspect of dormant inactivity. And this, this clinging hope to stay where we are, to holding on to what we know, even the far ends of the spectrum, politically or ideologically, though their content may be different, this process is quite similar across the board. Uh, sometimes in politics, this is referred to as horseshoe theory. But whether it's nostalgia or familiarity, there does seem to be a dedicated resistance to change. Again, episode six, the short version of this is that one, change feels like a loss, two, change is a disruption, and three, change is always difficult. Hence, change is a bit like a graveyard. You don't get much help from the inside. We resist that kind of thing, no matter what our political or ideological perspective is. Yet the nature of the world is that it's going to change anyway. It's built to grow. It's a plant, not a painting. And we're only left with the possibility of either intentionally promoting the growth or having that change forced upon us. No matter the content, the process will keep moving. So we need to consider what our relationship to that content and to that process is. All of that to say... I'm promoting that we don't just hold on to the content like putting a tree behind glass doors. I'm saying we need to understand the past content so we can continue the same process in a way that makes sense where we are now. That's the difference between a docent and a gardener. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the philosophical side here, but if we were to make a case via metaphysical ontology, don't worry about the phrase, 
we could venture into the perspective that existence is teleological. And here's what I mean by that. Whether, whether it's through sociological descriptions, um, you have evolutionary biology, world religions, humanism, and the moral good, the idea of teleology is that there is an end or a goal or a destination that seems to be prompting this natural change and this, this process. Conscious humans use reason to push forward toward meaning. So, a failure to move, a failure to continue to grow, is also a failure to incubate potential health and vision that, that's necessary to our lives as human beings. And I think this is especially ironic amongst religious traditions who, you know, by general critique, tend to be the most static and hold tightly to what was. Christianity, for example, is rife with this criticism. The irony is that Christianity is a very teleological ideology. The, the whole premise is that the end goal of the kingdom of God or shalom or restoration, what have you, it's not finished yet. The point of where we are going is unfinished. We aren't there. So why would you want to keep things at the unfinished, unrealized location? Why would you want to stop? But generally, the emphasis is that much of the map is left unexplored. Yet instead of using the map to catalyze our exploration, instead of using the previous work of the land to promote future growth, we, we stop and never venture out past where we are. Which, let's be honest, feels safer. But it's an attempt to stop nature. And we are determining that any future good or improvement or realization of what has started is going to be left unfinished and will remain forever untapped. Like to stay where we are is to take a river and blockade it into a stagnant swamp. That's not the best way to move forward. Let us move on to metaphor number three, maps. And here's the premise, uh, lived experience and the totality of human existence and respect to the possible future is like a map. And this is where we ended last episode. The human journey has been one of exploring and charting out the map as we've gone. Tradition, therefore, is the parts of the map that have been charted already. Now, some of that cartography hasn't been completely accurate. Sometimes a thing got charted and we come to find out that they, they charted the thing wrong. Likewise, whole parts of the unknown map have been left uncharted. But either way, the map has been expanded bit by bit. You, as a human being, and us as contemporary society, receive the current map with all of its previous explorations, even the bad ones. You as a finite, normal human, you're working with what you have. The world you entered is the one you inherited, and you have access to the map. And let it be said, via technology, we can actually access a good deal of the map. I mean, there are millions of voices that we have no record of, and we don't yet have the phenomenological experience of every individual of history, let alone every other people group. But we have access to more of the uh, conglomerated map of humanity than any other age, but having access doesn't mean you have to use it. 
So partly in review of what we talked about concerning the map last time, with historical entanglement and sociological map making, we have two general options here when it comes to your lifespan within history that also deals with this decision between docents and gardeners. One, you can stop exploring, freeze the map, a static interaction with a non-static world. You just stay on the map that you currently have inherited, which is actually a departure from the very thing that created the map, which might also be an irresponsibility to the people that gave you the map. Do we have a responsibility to continue what others started? They were on an adventure, but are now gone. They handed you this. Are you going to keep it going? The second option here is that we can keep going. And if the continuation of the world is unavoidable, it's going to happen anyway. To stop exploring is the equivalent of the Black Knight in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You're pretending to live in a world that no longer exists. And when we do this, the world becomes akin to a museum. If the world is a map, how do you use it? There's a Hebrew word that I love, davar. It usually gets translated as word and is most notably used in what is commonly called the Ten Commandments, which should actually be called the Ten Words or the Ten Devars. Anyway, this can also be translated very generally as thing. And typically, the word shows up in the present progressive tense. In fact, the whole commandments thing is written in the present progressive tense. The present progressive tense is usually some form of a to-be verb, followed by another verb ending in ing. So for example, someone is walking to the store. It tells you what is happening in the present and implies that the action is continuing. That's the present progressive tense. The reason I bring this up is because it's a good way to describe us as human beings. It's a good way to depict our relationship to the map. We are here and are continuing. We exist in the present progressive tense. The story of the world and history, it's in the present yet continuing state. And it's always been in that present continuing state. It's like what I brought up at the beginning of the tradition progress discussion a few episodes ago. In philosophical ethics, it's a balance of deontology, which is a duty to what has been established by some valid source, and consequentialism, which is where you make decisions based on the present context. And really, it's, it's wise to use both. To pay attention to the map we've inherited, respect it, but then figure out what it needs to look like as time and change go on. It is standing on solid ground while adapting to the ground as necessary. And even if our perspective is that, well, what was done in the past is wrong, it's still really helpful to know how a previous gardener messed something up if you're going to fix it. Tradition, essentially, is a process that requires balance. As the wisdom from Fiddler on the Roof says, scratching out a tune without breaking your neck. You only have the parts of existence that have been handed to you and that you've accumulated in your short duration of life. Yet the world is constantly moving. What the past had is not the whole thing, and what you have is not the whole thing. So we might as well keep moving. Are you, then, 
a gardener or a docent of the map of life? Do you take what you've inherited and protect it like a static painting, enshrining it behind glass and putting it up for display only with fixed reverence as an ever-cautious docent of the exhibit of life? Or are you a gardener, taking the current state of the land around you and nurturing its future in a way that uses what's been done and promotes its growth in the ever-changing world? What I'm saying we shouldn't do is take something that is alive and try to keep it there. Tradition should always be discussed as living tradition. Don't try to take a good thing and just maintain it, especially because that good thing is usually just a result of the current circumstances of the map at that time. And the world has shifted to new landscapes, so use the previous. But don't take the metaphorical garden and turn it into concrete. Tradition isn't a handbook. It is a story that's still being written. And and not to make this trite, but we do this with family traditions all the time. Like I I think often about my uh, family holidays growing up and how beautiful they were and having everybody in my grandmother's house. And it was so quaint and homely. And there was this energy about all of the family gathered in that space. And I remember thinking as I grew up and had my own children, at one point, there was a first one of those. There was a first time everybody was invited over and they had this elaborate meal with with various trappings and that particular atmosphere. And then I wonder if from there on out, every year was an attempt to replicate that first time. And did we actually stop allowing other experiences to inhabit that tradition because we were just trying to replicate the past. I think often what we do is we try to take something that was alive, that that was a genuine response to certain circumstances, and try to keep it there, instead of learning from the very process that created that beautiful thing in the first place. When it comes to tradition, we need to be gardeners. We need to take the roots of beautiful plants correct plants that were engaged with poorly and keep the process going. The plants we have were brought forth and nurtured by people before us, and we can only work with their decisions, some of which may not have been very good. But we still need to understand what they did, why they did it, and how they did it. We need to learn of their intentions and ways and mistakes so that we can appropriately continue what is with the hopes of where it can go. And ultimately, we are just doing the work that will be used by those who come after us. We are current caretakers of the garden in anticipation of those who will inherit it in the days to come. You, in your meager life, are caring for something that you did not start and that you will not see the end of. And I imagine that whatever we explore, we will hope that people will use down the road as well. All of this to say, the voices of the past are not complete, which means the voices of the past must be continued, which means the voices of the past cannot be ignored, which also means that maybe one day, if we honor this process of living tradition, your voice won't be ignored either. May you explore the map well and leave a better map for future travelers. May you interact with tradition in a way that future explorers will look back, appreciate, 
and rightfully continue. And may you see that this will happen if we live as gardeners and not as docents. That's everything on the dangers of tradition, which of course means that we need to talk about the dangers of progress next time. Thank you.